So um, today we're, we're going to be speaking about secession and self-determination. Um, so if you recall, we've uh, addressed questions of terminology, what is a state, what is a nation, what is an ethnic group. We have looked at uh, theories of how those three interrelate. So we have modernist theories of nationalism, which are more about states creating and maintaining nations. We have uh, ethno-symbolist theories, which are more about ethnic groups creating and, and maintaining nations. Uh, and we've also looked at questions of multi-ethnicity and how ethnic groups, nations, and states fit together. So you can have multi-ethnic states, multinational states, for example, and even multi-ethnic nations. What we're talking about today follows on from that. It's just that I'm going to be developing some of the politics and some of the concrete political movements that arise from ultimately that same problem of mismatch of culturist politics or mismatch of state and ethnicity uh, that can generate, because of that mismatch, can generate movements towards secession or another term which we'll encounter, irredentism. There may be a lot here. Hopefully, it will be clarified in your seminars as well. If it's, so don't be too overtly worried if you haven't picked up every single detail. Um, OK. So what I've tried to do with this in the next slide is to say there's kind of a, a process that nationalism goes through. Uh, so you, be, you begin with. Um, you begin with sort of cultural identity type movements. At the formation of an identity in the first place as Italian or as Finnish uh, or as Arab, you know, that the first thing you get is the creation of an identity. That's the first step. Before you can have a, a separatist movement, you have to know who you are, who is a member, who isn't, what your homeland is. So that has to actually be defined. So that is often the that's stage one. What is my group? Who is a member? And, and, and so on. Then you have stage two, which is where you start to set down and codify what is our language. Let's write it down. Let's write a dictionary for it. Uh, what, is a, what is its culture? Let's maybe do some archaeology. Let's maybe do some uh, linguistics to try and pin down what is typically Hungarian or typically Estonian or typically Hindu. So what, what is the, so that you often get a, a phase, a cultural nationalist phase. Uh, and that may have nothing to do with politics in the state and everything to do with cultural revival, theater groups, um, groups of gymnasts, and so on. Might involve religion. And there's a lot going on here. Stage three would then see the politicization. This is where this cultural, uh, cultural work eventually uh, precipitates into politics. And we get the first indication that something which was just about cultural revival has now become politicized. So the politi politicization into either parties or perhaps into paramilitary units that are fighting for independence, if we look at violent conflict. And then comes the question of uh, once you have mobilization, you may get an action. 1916 uprising in Ireland. You, know, you get a decisive action. And, and this may be prompted by questions of, of timing. It's probably better to break away when you're 
when the state is in crisis or the empire is breaking up, that's a good time. So timing, strategy, tactics, and so on. The question of whether to use violence or, or not. Um, and then finally we have, as the fifth stage, the role of the international environment, um, in which case you know, this includes support from ethnic kin in neighboring states, uh, recognition, international recognition, Germany recognizing Croatia, for example. Uh, recognition of Kosovo, that sort of uh, process of recognition is very important. Um, and then military support, you know, Iran supporting Hezbollah. Even though Hezbollah is not a secessionist movement, I don't want to pretend that it is. But the issue of military support is important. And, and I've tried to kind of show this in a chart here, where you start off with the formation of uh, an indigenous ethnic group here through some process of ethnogenesis. Um, and we talked a, a bit about that. Uh, moving through uh, cultural nationalism, which is about revival and codification of myths, symbols, uh, and culture, such as language, which is what, um, if you look at the work of Miroslav Brock, which is on your reading list, um, he talks about a phase A, phase B, and phase C. Phase A is the group of intellectuals who imagine the identity. Phase B is this set of associations that incubates and develops uh, a cultural nationalism, and then you have the, the political mass mobilization phase C. Uh, so it starts with this cultural revival, move to mobilization, uh, agitation, and conflict. This is really where we are in this lecture. Um, when we talk about the origin of ethnic groups, we're more here and to some extent here, although we'll return to this question, by the way, uh, this, is, this issue of cultural nationalism is important. It is important today as well if you consider an issue such as anti-immigrant nationalism, which is, um, which is a manifestation, one manifestation of cultural nationalism. It's not so much about uh, secession or politics. Um, so it still remains important, and we will return to it. But today, then, we are talking about this, and neither this nor the international dimensions, although there will be international dimensions to what we speak about. Uh, what do we mean by secession? Uh, again, the, the central problematic of study of nationalism is this imperfect overlap between the state and nations and ethnic groups. So when you have multiple ethnic groups in a state, which you do in 95% of states, or if you have multiple national movements within a state, then you're likely to get, uh, or you're more likely to get some kind of secession ongoing. But it's not always the case. In fact, there are groups that are content with uh, less than their own state that actually are quite content to just have autonomy rather than full um, separation. Separatism, though, this term separatism does encompass both uh, independence movements and autonomy movements. So it does encompass both of these movements. So you could have, for example, uh, like as in devolution in this country, the initial push for devolution coming from Wales and Scotland, not necessarily the case that that must mean a, a push for complete independence. Although, of course, as we see, particularly in Scotland, there is quite a strong independence uh, movement there. Um, 
Although arguably, I think I, I would make the argument that the sentiment in favor of independence is weaker than the sentiment in favor of autonomy in Scotland. But uh, both are species of this separatism. And it can be expressed in the form of this sort of federalism or devolution of powers from the center to uh, peripheral units. Um, it's also the case that self-determination aims are not inevitable. That is, not every ethnic group that has a territory is going to seek to break away from the state in which it's attached. Uh, in this particular case, this is drawn from something called the Minorities at Risk Survey, which is a, a large data set that catalogs all of the world's ethnic groups and then um, codes their characteristics. So one of the things they code for is, does this, is this group seeking self-determination? They found that of the small sample of groups that they had identified, 60% <coughs> did seek self-determination. So a majority of the groups they identified, but the groups they identified were all minority groups, and they were all minorities that they deemed to, in some way to be at risk uh, of violence, either violence being done to them, largely violence being done to them, but in some cases uh, they're fomenting violence against the state. So that's, that st shows you that there's quite a few groups that are quite quiet. Uh, I, I sometimes use the example of the Cajuns of Louisiana or the Balinese in Indonesia, you know, groups that are just content to sit back and just be, uh, and aren't politicized uh, and, and are not seeking this sort of uh, independence. And then even if you take, uh, you know, if you take the subset of cases uh, in this data set where groups are seeking self-determination, only a minority of those are using violence. So more groups that are seeking self-determination resemble peaceful secessions like Scotland, Quebec, rather than the violent ones. Uh, so so that's, that's interesting. Uh, what is the connection between nationalism and secession? It's possible to have secession without nationalism, by the way. So the, uh, you know, arguably what happened in the American South, the secession of the Confederacy, I mean, it is true that you did get a discourse of Southern nationalism. But initially, uh, the break was more over the question of uh, slavery and of states' rights, uh, rather than, strictly speaking, the secession of, of a group that thought of itself as an independent or as a nation. So it's not clear that these two are completely coterminous, but there is a strong relationship. Uh, particularly if we consider the ideology of nationalism, if we go back to that first lecture about definition of nationalism, the ideology that says uh, every people should have its own state, that which comes from, to some extent, the, um, the writing of German romantics like Fichte and Herder in the early 19th century. This is the, the source from which it grows. Uh, that argument basically says, well, it, you shouldn't be ruled by a foreigner. You should have your own state. And if that really is the ideology, <coughs> you can't be content being ruled by an empire or by a, a big multi-ethnic state. Uh, so, so these... The role of the ideology of nationalism is important. The other thing that is noteworthy about a secession is it tends to come in waves. If you look at the world's states, there are about almost 200 of them. Uh, they've tended to emerge in bursts. So the breakup, they tend to emerge around the periods of the breakup of empires, breakup, the end of World War I when the 
uh, Ottoman Empire and the Habsburg Empire broke up in Europe, uh, or decolonization of the European overseas empires in the 1950s, 60s. It's another period in which you get the formation of lots of new states. Um, so there's also a connection with, um, with the breakup of these large multi-ethnic empires, with historical junctures, and also with, uh, there's a certain copycat effect. So you, you tend to get uh, secessionists copying each other. It's not unlike what's happening to, with the Arab Spring, where you have first a series of events in Tunisia, and then it's first in Egypt, and then it's in Libya, and in Syria. Partly there's a copycat effect. Uh, some facts to note <coughs> about secessionist groups, ethnic groups who secede. What are the characteristics of these groups? And that's one of the questions we'll, we'll be asking in this seminar because in something like that big data set of 300 ethnic groups where all the groups are coded, part of the reason for that exercise is to try and predict which groups are going to mount secessionist movements and in particular violent secessionist movements. Uh, what we can say, also looking at the historical record, is it's clearly going to be uh, groups that see themselves as indigenous ethnic groups that are going to be involved in secession. You don't get immigrant groups, diaspora groups, seceding because they don't have the kind of roots and memories uh, in the territory they're living in. You don't, wouldn't get British Pakistanis seceding uh, from Britain because they don't have that sort of uh, myths about the landscape and mental maps about um, particular pieces of land. They're also not necessarily compactly settled, even if they were to somehow uh, want to secede, it would be very difficult. So this is really, uh, secession is a phenomenon that concerns primarily indigenous, or what Eric's um, Francis would call primary ethnic groups. The, the other fact to note is that we talked about uh, the definition of a nation as an integrated community. That, that integration of roads, print capitalism, um, mass education, mass conscription, taxation, all of those things which are developed very strongly in the modern period. And that is very important also for breakaway nationalisms, for the secessionists, because the secessionists too need to be organized. Uh, so. Modernity brings, makes it easier for groups to connect with each other, for Kurds <coughs> to find each other, for Basques to find each other and develop a common dictionary, a common set of myths and memories, a common political program. Modernity, modern integration helps not only the central state nationalism, but also the peripheral nationalisms to become better organized and mobilized. So that's often a prelude to agitation. Uh, so Hrock's study of some of the nationalist movements in Eastern Europe found, found that it's actually not the poorest and most backward areas that become the locus of secession. It's actually the more advanced parts of you know, the Czech lands in Austria-Hungary, Austria for example, where there is better integration, better communications, so that the group can actually have newspaper circulation, uh, more educated people. That's really what drives the, uh, the nationalism, not an illiterate peasantry. Illiterate peasantry is important later on, but not in the early stages. 
and that also means that there are fewer attempts at uh, secession prior to the modern period. Uh, it is true that the Roman Empire broke up, but it wasn't break up in the same way we might expect, say, the Austro-Hungarian Empire to break up, where you had well-defined nationalist movements which had been working on codifying histories and languages and were really prepared um, to take power, or, or the breakup of the Soviet Union. In the modern period, there's a real qualitative difference in terms of the peripheral communities. The peripheral communities have a better, uh, better sense of who they are and a better worked out, better organized um, sense of themselves as a nation. Uh, and there are also some other factors we'll come to. So for example, less developed areas, areas with lower degrees, yeah? Also on the succession price in surely they would still have been governed less actively as well. So there was more unity in kind of what they did anyway. Yes, yeah, so you mean the, the center would be less intrusive in the periphery. And so that was true. Or too intrusive. Well, or, yeah, or too intrusive. But it was also intrusive in the modern period, too. But uh, OK, so the, the starting point for a lot of the political science literature uh, on particularly ethnic conflict and secession is Donald Horowitz's magnum opus, Ethnic Groups in Conflict, 1985. Uh, not to be consumed in one sitting. Uh, it's, it's quite a big book, but incredibly interesting and lots of important insights. For Horowitz, really, if you really want to identify and understand uh, the forces that drive secession and violent secession, you have to understand domestic factors for him. It's not enough to explain things on the basis of international geopolitics and which states are providing military assistance to which rebels. It's, it's, you have to understand the domestic context. However, uh, secession cannot fully succeed without some kind of international recognition. But he tends to put the emphasis on the domestic side. Uh, talks about policy positions of rebels. So the extent of a rebel plane might, it might have to do with uh, the quality of the nationalism of the group. Uh, and, and certain groups might just be seeking statehood, and certain groups might not. But it's also the case that uh, groups conform to the limits of the possible. So in certain, at certain junctures, it becomes possible for a group to make a play for independent statehood. At other times, when you're facing a very, very strong state, repressive state apparatus, it might be much more difficult to do so. And so you see shifts in the tactics of different rebel groups. Uh, in response to political opportunities. Uh, and, and this is actually getting at, you know, throughout this lecture, hopefully you'll be able to see that the two major theories of nationalism, the modernist theory, which puts the accent on politics and, and material incentives, and the ethnosymbolist theory, which puts the accent on uh, cultural myths and memories, are, are kind of in competition in explaining secession. Um, so even here, for example, the, uh, the modernist type theory would tend to stress political opportunity as a much more important um, determinant of, of when a group will secede, whereas the ethnosymbolist will say, no, the re whether a group goes for outright statehood or autonomy is more linked to their own myths and memories of the past and their own uh, 
um, mental maps about uh, when they were independent, when they were free, and so on. Uh, Horowitz also, and this is another aspect of modernist theory, is that Horowitz argues, well, poor regions tend to secede more often, um, but there isn't a hard and fast correlation. So it's not the case that just because the periphery is poorer than the center, you're going to get secession in the periphery. Um, but if that were a very, I mean, that kind of an argument about relative deprivation is a, uh, is a materialist or modernist type of argument. Uh, and so Horowitz has this theory about that it's a mix of factors. He doesn't say it's just politics or just culture or just economics. There's a mix of different factors, uh, <coughs> which we'll analyze in a minute here. And this comes from, from the reading. So for Horowitz, he says, well, there are, different, there are a number of different aspects. He tries to say, let's look at combinations of groups and regions. So you can have groups that are relatively well-educated, well, relatively wealthy, uh, relatively sophisticated in terms of their occupational makeup. And then you have groups that are relatively backward, somewhat politically incorrect term, but backward in terms of uh, level of education, um, perhaps level of literacy. Uh, a group that's very um, agricultural would also be deemed backward. So you have a, a combination then of groups and regions. So you could get an advanced group, the Kikuyu in a backward region like the Rift Valley in Kenya. That's an example of an advanced group from the coast that might be moving, that might have moved into a relatively less developed region. That pattern is quite common in Africa where you get advanced groups uh, typically from the coasts that tend to, uh, to move inland to less well-developed uh, well areas. So you can get advanced groups in backward regions. You can also get backward groups uh, backward groups moving to advanced regions for opportunity. So moving from the countryside to the city uh, for opportunity. Maybe, um, I don't know, Baluchi is moving to um, Lahore or something in Pakistan. And you might get that, that pattern as well. Depending on the confluence then of group and region, you get different sorts of political claims that are made. And so for Horowitz, he says, well, you can actually, by, by knowing whether a group is backward or advanced and whether it inhabits a backward or advanced region, you can predict the kinds of national secessionist movements that may occur and the frequency. So for, the, for backward groups in backward regions, he says, you get lots of, uh, lots of, secessions, lots of secessionist movements, uh, whereas advanced groups tend to secede less often. Uh, it's also the case that... Uh, for backward groups, symbolic questions like uh, what is the official language of this region going to be? Uh, yeah. What does he mean by uh, advanced and, and backward groups? Well, just that, that a group which has a high level of um, education, wealth, and maybe is, is more involved in the bureaucracy, capitalism, and so on, whereas, as opposed to a, a more, a group that's basically peasant-based, low education, high illiteracy. That's how he distinguishes these two. Uh, sorry. So the advanced groups then tend to secede more rarely, uh, but when they do, they're, they're usually quite well organized. Uh, and, and this is particularly, so he points to groups. I mean, if you consider, uh, you know, Igbo and Yoruba in Nigeria as relatively advanced groups, for example, um, 
know, he would point to those groups as being better organized, seceding only if the economic costs are low. So they're taking into account the economic cost of secession, whereas the, the backward groups really have very little to lose, and so they tend to secede more often. So that's part of his, his explanation. Uh, Modernist arguments about politics and economics driving nationalism then are playing a big role uh, in some explanations of secession. So in that, the last slide where we talked about backward and advanced, part of what, what Horowitz is getting at is that the inequality in gross national product or income between groups uh, matters for uh, what occurs in terms of secession. Uh, and in fact, there was a theory called internal colonialism, still is, which used to be more popular, associated with uh, writers such as Tom Nairn, who, for example, points to a, a, a nation like Scotland and says one of the reasons behind Scottish separatism is the fact that it is uh, a periphery of Great Britain and therefore it is less well off than the center. So, and this is also true of Wales. So that perhaps there's something in that, the idea of... Um, what Nairn would call an internal colony or perhaps a periphery, uh, which, is, which has economic grievances against the center, and that is a, it provides impetus for it to secede. But then there are others, such as uh, Michael Hector, who say, well, how do we explain Flanders in Belgium or uh, Catalonia in the Basque country in Spain? These are rel relatively advanced regions. They are wealthier better educated than the national center, than the central state. So that doesn't easily fit into a view that says it's the uh, deprived peripheries that tend to secede. Because uh, in the case of Flanders or Catalonia, it's the entrepreneurial, relatively advanced peripheries that seem to be seceding. So maybe actually whether a, a periphery is wealthier or poorer than the center doesn't make much difference. Uh, but then again, they argue both that in fact it does make a difference or it plays in. Another view which Horowitz puts forth is that groups interpret their position differently. So if you are worse off than the center, you say, well, we'd be better off without, you know, we Scots would be better off without uh, being in Britain. If you are better off than the center, you, would, you again might say, well, we'd be better off without uh, Madrid. If, you know, we, we Basque would be better off without Madrid, uh, siphoning off our tax money. So, this, this, so either way, you can find a rationale. Um, so the possibility is that both might actually play a role. Being richer and being poorer than the center could both matter. Or maybe neither matters, and they're just incidental. Uh, but a modernist argument about economics would, would place some kind of emphasis on, upon relative, uh, relative economic development between the center and the periphery. Uh, again, I want to show you uh, a particular case study which um, I think illustrates this theoretical divide in terms of explaining secession. And the case that we're looking at here is the, uh, we're looking at a map of Congo, and in particular focusing on the southern democratic, what is the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, region known as Katanga, which is a mineral-rich region of Democratic Republic of Congo. And in 1960, uh, there was a secessionist movement in this mineral-rich region. 
Um, now, on the face of it, that looks like a classic case of a modernist, uh, so sorry, of a modernist secession. So, in other words, if the if the diamonds and minerals weren't there, you wouldn't have a secessionist movement. The reason you've got a secessionist movement is that some elites want to get their hands on the resources here, and they don't want those resources going to other elites uh, in the center. Actually, the center is more in this area, uh, the center of the state. So you can see that that, that argument really is about um, material factors driving the process of nationalism, national secession. But you can also find uh, an ethno-symbolist explanation in the fact that the movement breaks apart into northern and southern uh, components. No, northern and southern components which are primarily tribal or ethnic in nature. So the Lunda and Bayeke in the north and Baluba in the south. So that split into the northern and southern competing movements. For an ethno-symbolist, they would say that occurred because of those pre-existing ethnic identities which splintered the movement into competing parts. So that kind of hopefully illustrates that you have uh, different types of explanation, both of which may be valid. That, that it could be about resources, but it could also be about culture, history, and uh, ethnic attachments. Uh, now, more recently, political scientists ha have been working with some of these large data sets which have tried to code up the characteristics of groups. Uh, this is a relatively recent venture. It only dates from the mid-1990s. Uh, and it's very difficult, of course, to pin down the characteristics of ethnic groups. It's not like a database based on states. Those have been in, in existence for long because states have definite boundaries. You can say, OK, this state's gross domestic product is x. Its population is y. Its area is z. So you can come up with uh, clean-cut um, characteristics for, for states. It's, it's maybe harder to do that for ethnic groups. What is uh, you know, how do we delineate the exact territory of the Sunnis in Iraq or the Pashtun in Afghanistan? I mean, we, we have an idea, but it's not, doesn't have precise coordinates in the same way that uh, the boundaries of the state of Afghanistan or Iraq do. So it's not as precise a science. Far from it. And in fact, you also have this issue of coding that you have to have people who, who try and make a determination about these ethnic groups. Is this ethnic group mobilized? Does it have a high degree of, of organization into groups? Um, does, is it seeking self-determination? Is it using violence? Some of those things will be more obvious than others, but it's, it's just not as clear-cut as with states. Um, OK, and there are other problems with this data set, one of which is the fact that it's a, a data set about minorities at risk, and that at-risk bit is determined by people who compile that data set. So in a way, there's some bias that's already um, permeating the data set from the beginning. But still, it's the best we have. And it's currently, you know, it's constantly being developed just to say uh, these are pre somewhat preliminary findings. <coughs> uh, some of the work which has been done on the basis of these large-scale data sets by writers such as Ted Gurr, uh, who is the person who actually organized this enterprise in the first place, uh, is quite interesting. In some ways, it does throw up some new insights which build on those of people, more qualitative researchers like Donald Horowitz. 
One of the interesting uh, features that they find about groups that engage in secession is they tend to have a high level of organization. So a group where most of the, or a large number of members <coughs> read the community newspaper uh, or are involved in a community organization. So if they're organized and mobilized into associations, they are more likely to engage in secession. That is, again, a more practical, uh, a more practical feature which we would associate with a materialist explanation of nationalism. You only tend to get this kind of organization in a modern context where you have newspapers, you have roads, you have organizations that can mobilize people. So organizing capacity tends to come with modernity. And that's reinforced by another finding um, in, from this literature, which is as you get a higher density in telephone lines and other forms of communication in a region, so if you go to a, a backward periphery of Central African Republic or of, of some country, and you start to set up roads and telecommunication systems, that can help the local periphery to organize itself for uh, national secession. So what's ironic here is you have modernity, which helps the state, because the state can build customs posts, and it can build roads, and help it to control peripheries. So the state is moving into its peripheries and exerting more control. But at the same time, the peripheries are getting organized to resist the state. Whereas maybe in the past, uh, as we saw in the case of France and Provence and, and some of the French peripheries, they weren't organized. This, the French state was better organized than the peripheries. And so the French state was more able to assimilate challenges to the state. Whereas in a lot of the particularly post-colonial uh, societies in, in Africa and in Asia, uh, the state was not very well organized, not very powerful, uh, and the peripheries, in, in many ways, were, were able to get organized and challenge the state more effectively. So that's one of the reasons why we might tend to see more uh, effective secessionist movements in post-colonial societies. One of, it's only one of the reasons. Uh, another, some of the other factors that they did point to, one of which is this issue of demographic stress, either high population growth or where you have one members of one ethnic group moving on to what another group considers its homeland. They, if you remember the riots in Kenya, it's the movement of people from the coast inland or another case is Ivory Coast. Actually, this is just this year where you had violence in Ivory Coast. That is the movement of people from the north, uh, rural areas of the north down to the south. Uh, to work on the uh, cocoa plantations. Um, so you have a shift in the composition of the population. The locals kind of feel invaded. Even if people are coming from their own country, their, their view is that we're being invaded by northerners. In the case of Ivory Coast, those northerners would tend to be Muslim, and the southerners tend to be Christian, so you get the added religious dimension. But still, uh, demographic factors can pl play a role in precipitating secession, sparking off sometimes sparking off violence, as, as in the case of Kenya and Ivory Coast. Geographic concentration is also important. I'll come to that in a minute. Interesting. Uh, whether a group has been discriminated against does not seem to have been connected with the extent to which they're seeking secession. So groups that are actually discriminated against in civil service jobs uh, and other kinds of posts 
don't seem to be particularly more likely to uh, secede. So that, because that would be, that is an important prediction out of modernist theory that it's deprivation, some kind of deprivation, material deprivation that tends to lead to a, a group wanting to secede from the state. Just to show you some of the factors out of this Gur study. So what Gur's saying with this here is groups that are uh, mobilized into um, organizations such as, you, know, you can even look at something like the Muslim Brotherhood, social movements where many large numbers of, of the population are organized into these movements, 85% more likely to secede than groups where there isn't this level of organization, cohesive organization. So that's important. Um, on the other hand, we have more ethno-symbolist type factors. Did the group, has the group ever been independent? Has it experienced a loss? Estonia, the Baltic states, they can remember very clearly being taken over by the Soviet Union after World War II. So the memories of their independence are quite fresh. That is important for a group. Uh, even for, if you take the case of Palestinians, because 1948 was when, um, when they were taken over, that memory is a relatively recent memory, and it's more powerful than if the territory was taken over 200, 500 years ago. So more recent losses, uh, important. Uh, or sorry, I should say recent losses, 100% of groups that, that experienced a recent loss of their independence were seeking self-determination. But 80% of groups whose losses were more distant in time were also seeking self-determination. So that suggests that myths and memories are important. If 80% of the groups that lost their independence in a relatively long time ago are also seeking independence, that might suggest that those historical processes are important for secession. Whereas groups that have never experienced territorial loss, that don't have those memories that are really starting fresh, well, they only 21% of those 85 groups that have that characteristic were seeking secession. So that's maybe support for the more ethno-symbolist argument about history and memory, rather than the modernist argument about uh, organizing capacity and modernity. Um, and uh, there are also a number of, of other studies which corroborate some of this. Uh, a factor I haven't talked about as much is Territorial compactness. Is a group territorially compact? Do most of its members live in a homeland region where they make up a majority and it's neatly defined territorially? That kind of geographical compactness really does matter for whether a group is going to secede. Uh, and it's also important for ethnic violence. Groups that are very highly scattered are going to find it harder to mobilize. Uh, they're going to find it harder to defend a particular territory against the state. So it matters for practical military reasons that you have a secure home base that you can defend against or that your fighters can hide amongst the local population against uh, the security forces of the state. That's part of the, the reason for this. But there's also perhaps, that's a more modernist logic because it's to do with military factors, political ones. But you could also say there's an ethno-symbolist logic in that a group that is territorially compact uh, has more of a sense of a compact homeland, a real sense of where its homeland is that it wants to break away from the state. So that, that's 
Uh, separatist kin, this turns up in a lot of different analyses. If, uh, you know, if you are seceding from a state, and if you are Kurds seceding from Turkey, or you want to secede from Turkey, it helps if you have <coughs> Kurds in Iraq, and Kurds in Iran, and Kurds in Syria, in, in neighboring states that also that you can lean on for support, regardless of whether uh, they are separatism, uh, separatists. If they're also separatists, as is the case with the Kurds, so you have separatists in Iraq and separatists in Turkey, uh, so much the better for predicting whether a group's going to secede. So that's important as well. Separatist kin ties. Contagion, I talked about the Arab Spring. Uh, the Arab Spring where you have this copycat effect. Uh, where you have a, a revolt in one place, and then that inspires a revolt in another place. Uh, that pattern is, we see this pattern in a lot of, um, uh, se with separatist nationalist movements. So the breakup of the Soviet Union, uh, decolonization. Yes, it's partly to do with these empires voluntarily breaking up from the center, but it's also to do with nationalist movements copying each other and a sort of domino effect. So contagion from regional protest movements is important. Uh, there's a link then to that, the earlier work by Ted Gurr, in that both of these studies, the Ayers and Cedarman and the Gurr study, stress the importance of groups having a compact, mobilized base and separatist kin in neighboring countries. Um, all of which underscore the role then of indigenousness, indigenous ethnic groups, rather than diaspora groups are the ones that are agitating for secession. Um, I'm not expecting you to understand this. This is just, <coughs> what I put this up here partly is to show you the kinds of work that some political scientists do, which is to work with these large comparative politics data sets. All this is saying is anything that's starred is a significant predictor of secession. So if we talk about the 1980s when there were quite a few secessions, particularly from the Soviet Union, uh, if a country was in Eastern Europe, former uh, USSR, um, much higher likelihood of a secession. If a country was in a region where there were a lot of other uh, rebellions going on, again, more likely to secede. Group concentration, that when I mentioned that idea of being territorially compact, that's important in both the 1980s secessions and in the 1990s secessions. Uh, so that is very important, this idea of a group having a compact home base where it can live. And so that's just giving you a sense of some of the factors that, that are uh, at work in secessionist movements. I'm going to speak uh, hopefully quite briefly about this. We can get, if you have questions, we can get at this in the seminar. Irredentism, this term irredentism comes from the Italian irredenta, meaning unredeemed. If you look at Ireland, the Republic of Ireland is the 26 counties in the south. There are six counties in Ireland that belong to Great Britain uh, and form Northern Ireland. The Republic of Ireland, the 26 counties, for many years had a territorial claim on the six counties of the north. They said, well, these should be part of a united Ireland. That kind of a territorial claim is known as irredentism. So the argument here would be that the Irish Republic was irredentist with respect to the six counties of the north. 
And this comes from Italy, which was irredentist towards territories uh, that uh, were absorbed into Yugoslavia, which it felt it needed to redeem. So that is what irredentism is about. Uh, more recently, if, you t if we think about uh, Albania and Kosovo, Albania as irredentist towards Kosovo. So wanting Kosovo to be part of a greater Albania. Serbia, irredentist towards uh, territories in Bosnia, uh, what is now Republika Srpska, Bosnian Serb territory, so it's irredentist. Hungary, irredentist towards Transylvania, which is part of Romania. But that's a part of Romania that is populated by ethnic Hungarians, amongst others. So the territorial state Hungary says, well, we got a bad deal after World War I. We lost a bunch of territory full of ethnic Hungarians. We want it back again. That is what irredentism is about. Uh, and you can see that it involves a kind of separation. Because if Hungary were to get Transylvania back, uh, <coughs> a whole chunk of Romania's territory would be transferred to Hungary. So that territory would have to break away from the Hungarians of Romania would first have to secede from Romania. And then they would join with Hungary. Or if you think about Kosovo, if Kosovars wished to be part of Albania, they would first have to break away from former Yugoslavia. So first a secession, then a rejoining or a joining with a state. So it, it is involving a separation, the separation and uh, an absorption by a state. Uh, now, not all irredentisms have this nationalist quality. Most of them do have that sort of ethno-historic quality. But sometimes you have something that, that takes place, such as the Falkland Islands. Argentina makes a claim to the Falkland Islands. That is kind of an irredentist claim. So it's a claim for those territories, but it's not a claim that's based upon uh, shared historical cultural ties, because the Falkland Islanders actually are English-speaking uh, rather than Spanish-speaking. So, so it's not of the same type as, say, um, I don't know, a, a greater Albania, a greater Serb, or Irish situation, something different. Uh, you also have you know, an interesting species of this where a, a country such as Morocco says, well, we have historically our empires based in Morocco have historically ruled over Western Sahara. So that, based upon a historical claim of suzerainty, we should have rights in Western Sahara. Um, so they would have irredentist claims on the Western Sahara. Or likewise, China in Tibet. Chinese empires have historically ruled in Tibet. Therefore, we should continue to hold Tibet as our territory. Um, that's, that's obviously a matter of dispute as well. Uh, there's a whole series of discussions about irredentism. I think this might have been added recently. Sorry about that. But really, irredentism is, is much more likely if the ethnic kin to the state, so if the, uh, uh, if the Hungarians in Romania, if the Hungarians in Serbia are engaged in separatism from those states, then you're more likely to have Hungary get interested in uh, absorbing those populations into itself. Um, another interesting point that's made by Sedeman and Ayers is that uh, you know, people predicted that with the end of the Cold War, we'd get a lot of this irredentism, that, that the Hungarians would start a fight with Romania over Transylvania, and you'd have um, you know, 
also with, with Albania, you'd get sort of a, this, this push for a greater Albania. Um, a lot of those conflicts didn't materialize. One of the reasons these authors claim is because um, countries didn't really want to absorb a lot of other peoples along with their own. So Hungary was worried that if it took on Transylvania, it would absorb not only Hungarians, but also uh, a, lot of, a whole lot of Romanians and other minorities which might make trouble for it. So actually, countries that have a more homogenous ethnic basis like Hungary uh, are less likely to, to engage in um, irredentism than a country like Serbia, which in many ways has a history of being less homogenous and whose nationalism is more territorial or was more territorial. Uh, not going to go through this because it's, we're not mainly concerned with irredentism. Uh, some of the questions that are raised by secession and irredentism, one of which is uh, the importance of ethnicity. And this, is, this gets back to the, the first lecture where I defined the terms state, nation, and ethnic group, and how some nationalisms are more based upon ethnicity and others more based upon the state. Uh, secession does raise a theoretical question, which is to what extent are nations which are formed of <coughs> states, what we might call, I don't want to call that, call them myself, but we might call them artificial or more artificial creations. So the nations of sub-Saharan Africa, which were, whose boundaries were drawn up at the Berlin Conference of 1885 by the colonial powers that inherited state boundaries from the colonial powers, to what extent is uh, Nigerianness uh, and Malawiness and Tanzanianness going to succeed as a national identity, uh, given that those national identities are very recent in most cases, not in all cases, but in many cases, those are recent creations. To what extent are they going to be able to compete with the ethnic identities which lurk underneath? One of the claims about Sub-Saharan Africa is that the nation states are quite weak because they lack uh, a powerful basis in history and memory. This is certainly the ethno-symbolist argument about why you see a lot of secession in uh, particularly Sub-Saharan Africa, is that the, the national identities are relatively seen as relatively artificial and weak in comparison to the uh, sub-component, the, the ethnic identities underneath. Uh, this, this, following this logic, the ethno-symbolist argument is that ethnic nationalism is what usually drives secession, whereas the modernist argument would be that, no, you can get secessions quite easily of non-ethnic units. So uh, a, a unit that's clearly non-ethnic, like Eritrea, or the Confederacy in the United States, or um, Venezuela in Latin America, where the Latin American countries seceded out of greater Colombia, would all be examples where it cannot be explained by pre-existing historical myths and memories. It must be explained by political opportunities, material incentives, elites, constructions, and so on. Uh, and then there are some, perhaps like Vojvodina, where it's a mixture of both. It's partly the influence of ethnic Hungarians, partly, uh, but, but it's not exclusive to those ethnic Hungarians. So it's partly also a civic uh, political movement. The modernist or the instrumentalist perspective, the alternative to ethno-symbolism, uh, explains <coughs> separatism differently. They don't explain it on the basis of historical memories of when we had our own independent country and we were taken over. 
It's not explaining it on the basis of cultural affinities, but explaining it more on the basis of, for example, um, institutional inheritance. The reason that the Soviet Union or the Habsburg Empire broke up along the lines it did was because those lines, the Soviet republics had been drawn by Soviet planners on a map and the passports with the stamp of whether you were a Kazakh or Ukrainian, uh, that was institutionalized. It was in a way created by Soviet elites and so it developed a momentum of its own. And legislatures, for example, giving, so this argument would say giving Scotland its own legislature was actually going to help push it towards secession because you're giving it institutions a basis from which it can create an identity. Uh, whereas the ethnocivilist explanation would be, well, no, actually there's already a very strong historical memory of um, independence and separate identity there. And actually, if you give it institutions, it might help to, to address some of its grievances and, and prevent it from seceding. So you can see there are different implications of taking one or the other approach. Uh, but the, the modernist, one version of the modernist approach is the Brubaker view that um, it's the institutions which lay the basis for subsequent breakup. Uh, another view is that it's simply the breakup of states and empires creating a power vacuum into which elites move. Another is what we saw with uh, Katanga. It's about resources and it's about wealth and elites seeking to monopolize wealth by seceding, getting their own power base or their own hands on resources. Um, I put Scotland in there when Scotland had oil. Um, <laughs> so, uh, the ethnosymbolists, however, they say, well, no, it's really about these mental maps or blueprints, historical memories of, you know, in the case of the Jews, the promised land, uh, or the Armenians, you know, this sort of mental maps, memories of where the homeland is, uh, which are passed on from generation to generation, form the basis for claims. Groups will secede when they get the chance. The only reason they haven't seceded is maybe they're in states that are too strong or too repressive. If those states weaken or have a change of heart, they'll go for full independence uh, when practical conditions allow. We will bypass the primordialists for now because that complicates the picture. And that is a relatively minor theory in, in nationalism. It's a less popular theory. Uh, so just to conclude now, um, Nationalism, can, it, it can be cultural in form, so in terms of cultural revivals. When it starts to become organized, it then can move into a political phase. So uh, you first get the formation of identity, then you may get mobilization, and then you may get uh, a political phase that could be democratic secession or it could be violent secession. Uh, Self-determination claims are not inevitable just because you have a separate national identity. And violent self-determination claims are even less so. Uh, what are the factors that characterize groups, uh, sorry, what factors tend to characterize separatist groups? Uh, some of the ones that we've looked at today include whether a group is geographically, that is territorially compact, settled in a compact geographical area, whether it has a high density of telephone and other forms of communication in its territory, so whether it can be organized itself well 
and whether it's mobilized, its members are mobilized into associations and organizations. All of that organizational density helps and predicts a group's propensity to secede. Uh, discrimination and other forms of grievance don't play such a strong role when it comes to a group's propensity to seek uh, to secede. They may play a bigger role when it comes to determining which separatist movements go violent and which ones don't. Their uh, grievances against a repressive state might matter more. Um, the evidence really, in terms of the major theories of nationalism, is mixed, as you might expect. So in some cases, the evidence supports the materialist, the instrumentalist, and materialist explanations. Uh, so in some cases, you can see that more poor or more wealthy regions tend to secede. Uh, in some cases, you can see that resources lie at the basis of a secessionist movement. But in other cases, um, ethnosymbolist factors, such as the presence of ethnic kin in neighboring states, or such as memories of having been independent and having lost that independence, uh, are to the fore. So we want to sort of think in, in terms, when we look at secessionist movements, do we see those historical cultural motivations, or do we see more uh, instrumentalist, materialist motivations at work, which tend to be linked to modernizing processes such as um, communications density. Okay. Thank you. Um, whichever group you were in last week, uh, or sorry, whichever room you were in last week, please go to the other room, and uh, we'll see the next group in upstairs at room 630. Yeah, sorry, yeah, of course you've got 10 minutes until the start of the seminar, so yeah. <laughs>